She entered the graveyard, the full moon rising, cast a stir, dark shadows. Everything seemed threatening, the smell of death, fear, terror. From out of the darkness, a beast howled. Children of the night. A frail, vulnerable woman alone among the dead sensed an unseen presence. The villagers had killed him the day before yesterday, and he was buried, locked deep beneath the weight of earth and stone. Banished back to the depths from which he came. She tripped over an exposed root, and she fell down as she tried to get her bearing. Then she sought it. A scarred hand emerging from an unmarked grave. Slowly the dead corpse emerged. She decided she must run, but she was too terrified, terrified beyond her capacity for rational thought. But she ran. She tripped and she fell. She got up and she ran again. Two guards tried to stop her. She screamed at them, run fools! And she escaped into the seeming safety of the familiar village. She ran up the stairs of her apartment building, the stairs she had walked a thousand times before. She felt the presence behind her, but when she turned, no one was there, just emptiness. She opened the door, she slammed it shut, and she locked it. At last she was safe within the comfortable world of her friends. Then she noticed that he was standing in the corner. <coughs> he was addressing her friends, terrified. Its lips moved and dead words from beyond the grave came out. And it said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So why don't we see the resurrection as a horror story? Why instead do we see it as a story of hope? This is the Feast of All Saints. This is Oro Valley Catholic, and I'm Father John Arnold. Stories of horror date from as long as people have been telling stories. The walking dead, the gross, the horrible, the terrifying. Even just think of the Bible from that perspective. Do you recall the story of Genesis starts to turn towards the truly dark when the serpent seduces Eve by convincing her that the creator is not worthy of her trust? You cannot trust the world that you live in. And then brother killed brother and lied about it. We well, you know in the Greco-Roman stories, something similar happened. Um, Saturn, who was like the god of time and agriculture, he ate his sons one after the other as they were born because he was afraid that they might betray him. Very close, basically the same story of Kronos in Greek mythology. Father turns on son. Think Jack Nicholson in The Shining, a movie about an alcoholic and delusional father captivated by a motel who violently kills one man and attempts to murder his wife and son. Is it just the booze that turns him? Because you remember there's a scene where he's locked into a freezer 
and someone lets him out, but no one's in the hotel. <laughs> well, in medieval lore, probably going back to the 6th century and the original Danish story, the Danes told a story about a monster named Grendel, whose mom was a monster, and Grendel would break into the mead hall of Rothgar, and he was so powerful, he'd pick up a warrior and shove him into his mouth, just like a jalapeno popper as he ate them up. Well, the great geek warrior Beowulf comes over, attacks and kills Grendel, rips his arms off, and then mom comes down, and she's going to take vengeance for her little son, Grendel. And he, she goes in and wreaks havoc. So Beowulf must go and swim deep into a lake, emerge into a secret cavern, confront mom, kind of a dragon lady. And yes, he must kill mom. So much horror is centered around destruct, dysfunctional families. For every The Shining, think of the movie Psycho with Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins, the one that taught you that you can't even have a safe, warm shower, or Carrie with Sissy Spacek, whose monster mom drove that likable but offbeat teen to burn up and destroy her entire community. You know, dysfunctional families and the horror of it isn't the totality of ancient or modern horror stories. Think of The Exorcist or Dracula, truly Catholic stories where a priest heals a woman that is possessed by the devil. In fact, in the movie, there's this self-sacrifice of the priest taking on evil upon himself, almost in a Christ-like way. Or Bram Stoker, remember his Dracula hunter, Professor Van Helsing, a man of science and a man of Catholic faith. He studies the vampire, knows its, uh, its moves, but at the critical time, he comes armed with holy water and a crucifix. And so in the early Dracula by Bram Stoker, it's this inverse of Christianity where you become part of the vampire's world by drinking its blood, right? And then what happens is in the modern movies is as the culture drifts away from Christian stories, they hold on to the old horror stories because you can make a buck off them. But now the vampire is this likable kid sitting in the desk next to your daughter. She wants to be a vampire too. Or the wolf man is Michael J. Fox and uh, turns out to be kind of a hero. And it's an attempt to subvert the... Uh, horror genre. Here's how subversion works. If you subvert an individual, it's because you slander him, you tear him down in his community, so he is undermined. But to subvert a genre, a way of thinking, you have to colonize it. You have to make it mean something else. And so think of, quote, horror movies that have been domesticated, like uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who originally kind of uses crosses, then doesn't need him anymore. She can just dominate evil because, you know, she's a cheerleader and really smart. Or, I think worse, how about the movie Disney's Maleficent or Broadway's Wicked, where evil is just misunderstood. You know, there are people or families 
distort kids. And so there's a kind of a truth in the narrative of Maleficent or Broadway's uh, Wicked, which takes the Wicked Witch from the Wizard of Oz and, and explains her as to why she's just misunderstood. But does that really, is that a way of understanding evil? Does psychology, is that really the doorway to go in and, and take a look at what's happening in the world? Can you imagine Mr. Adolf Hitler going to see a psychiatrist laying down on the couch and the psychiatrist says to him, Mr. Hitler, tell me about your childhood. We're gonna figure this whole Third Reich thing out right here. Well, the long narrative of almost all world culture is in some way about good and evil. In the Christian world, evil is a deprivation of the good. Evil is a, reb a rebel because God is good and creation is good. And what evil is, is our unwillingness to participate in the goodness of, uh, of, uh, of creation. And so what happens when this struggle of the evil trying to overcome good is ex explained or replaced by mere existential dread, where everything from Nazism, Stalin crimes, Khmer Rouge, Mao Zedong, Islamic terrorism, mob violence on the street. You know, really, if you just understood, then it's really not so bad. Who buys that? Give me a good horror movie because it deals with what's real about the basis of every human being. And it means what's gross, what's horrible, and what's terrifying. So here's a good question. Scary stories. Is the gross, the horrible, and the terrifying just a psychological condition? Can you overcome it with enough therapy or a couple of pills? You know who knows a lot about horror? Stephen King, the author of uh, Salem's Lot uh, and a variety of, of stories like Pet Cemetery, which explore uh, terror. So Stephen King, the master of the terrible, <laughs> terrifying story, he said that all scary stories of whatever time, whatever place, have three components. And at least one is present in every scary story, often all three. And here are the three components. The first is this, the gross out. The gross out is the repulsiveness of our nature. Uh, and that's present in like a severed head or a decomposing corpse or a zombie falling apart as it tries to eat your brains. Then, besides what's merely gross or disgusting, how about horror proper? Horror proper imagines the graphic portrayal of the unbelievable. The audience is faced with something that strikes up genuine fear, typically caused by the sight of something so unreal, so implausible, so unnatural, that our minds struggle to grasp what we're seeing. We have no place to put it. So it's the dead waking up and walking around and eating brains, or it's horrifying clowns with pointy teeth. It can be nature that just doesn't belong here. How about our fear rooted in the nature that's not controllable, as in Jurassic Park's dinosaurs, 
or Hannibal Lecter's Cannibalism in Silence of the Lambs. And that th leads to the third uh, element in what terror and horror is. And it's just terror itself. But horror is about something physical. Terror is something psychological. The deep psychological and spiritual basis of terror is rooted in the unknown. The lights mysteriously go out and you feel something behind you, following you or touching you. Imagine that the demonic makes itself present because all the lights in your house flicker. Why is that scary? But it's how they make movies. But it's what lights you up that there is something out there that you can't see and you can't combat in normal terms. Our psychological control and our rationality fall away and we are abandoned in another realm present in our world. Okay, so I asked, why is the resurrection not a horror story? Because the resurrection is about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Today, we celebrate the Feast of All Saints. If we were Stephen King, we'd call it the Day of the Army of the Dead. Think of any Bruce Campbell film. But saint stories are rooted in the story of Christ and how is it that God becomes a human being? What the incarnation means in a human way. Well, think about it. The three elements of terror, the gross out, horror proper, and terror. Think of Jesus' story as colonizing, subverting the whole genre of horror that goes back to Cain and Abel, Kronos, Saturn, uh, uh, Beowulf, and anything that Hollywood could throw at us. So the gross out. The Lord experienced the grossest, grossness of life in his brutal death. Well, throughout his life, he experienced the gross, grossness of life. Jesus' body had every function that our bodies have. He had cut his finger. He had a headache. He had a tummy ache. He probably hit his thumb with, a, with the hammer. He experienced the death of his father, Joseph. He experienced the deaths of friends, the brutal deaths of people he knew at the hands of Romans. Imagine what it was like to watch somebody stoned to death. This is the gross out part of Jesus' life. He entered into all of it. How about horror proper? And so just the violence of death, you get an infection in that world and you would die. How about insanity or demonic possession? If there's a difference in the ancient world or in ours, the idea that something enters into you and takes control over you. Um, and so his experience of the horror proper, he himself is arrested, he's brutalized, He's marched down the street. He's jeered at. He's spit upon. He's kicked. He falls. He's hung up naked on the cross. He has nails put through his hand. All right, my friend, this is pretty horrible. And then terror. You know, remember terror. The difference between terror and horror is terror is kind of a corporeal thing. It's a, um, no, horror is a corporeal thing. Terror is a psychological dimension of horror. So Jesus is hunted. There are conspiracies against his life. People are whispering behind his back. They are conniving. They are scheming. He is going to be betrayed. What he wonders will become of his mother and his friends when he's not there to protect them.
Jesus and the story of his crucifixion and his passion and death subverts the whole horror genre by immersing himself in the grossness of life, the horror of the world, and his terror. There's no point in asserting that Jesus never feared any of these experiences. No point in saying that the spirit is more real than our corporality, and so that horror and terror are just illusions and we can ignore them. Nonsense! These are part of our corporeal life as they were part of Jesus' life. This is the primordial condition of the human person. And to be real, we have to deal with it. And a culture that can't deal with it is going to turn really dark because this is where human beings live, rooted in the earth. Why do you need faith as everything is under your control? Why do you need courage if all fear is only an illusion? Everything is just a scarecrow. Well, our final end is not to just become nice people, but to be transfigured as sons and daughters of God. And in the readings today, St. John reports a vision of a great multitude, see the army of the dead, which no one can count from every nation, race, people, and tongue, fulfilling God's promise to Abraham that by his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. The church celebrates many famous Christians, St. Therese of Lisieux, St. Joseph, St. Francis, on their individual memorials. And today she praises God for all of his holy ones, the saints known and unknown. God's saints are divinized by baptism, by the mystery of the grace of God. This is how we enter into God. First, friends, you must be willing to be drowned to die with Christ. Then he'll breathe fire on you. Then you'll have to eat his body and drink his blood. That sounds like the stuff of a horror story, if you ask me. They wait for the day when they will share in the inheritance of the saints in light. St. John in the second reading tells us that to be saints is to be a children of God. We are God's children, but what we are to be has not yet been revealed, according to St. John. Christ revealed earthly beatitude for us. We are blessed, he says, when we're poor, when we mourn, when we're persecuted for his sake. It's then we should rejoice and be glad for our reward will be great in heaven. Remember what I said about subversion? So when you colonize someone else's world, you make what they think is blessing a curse, but the real blessing is feed the poor. Now we'll pull this all together in an exciting and terrifying end. <coughs> what role does the gross, the horrible, and the terrible play in your life and the life of uh, all human beings. Why do scary movies frighten us? It's because of the corporeality of our bodies. It's that uh, world we live in is out of control. It's fears about the future. And so the weaponizing of mob violence, because if you just burn down enough buildings, you'll cure racism. Or it's the weaponizing of scandalous accusations. Because if you could subvert an individual and tear them down, you could save the planet. It's really how Jesus is tempted in the desert by uh, Satan. Um, it's these ancient 
instincts of the fallen person. Why do scary movies frighten us? Because it's gross, horrible, and terrible, mostly without God. The metaphysical reality of the horror film genre is built inextricably on the Christian worldview. That doesn't make them all Christians, but that the only way that they're intelligible is the sense that there is such a thing as goodness, is such a thing as evil, and the world is not simply about uh, men and women. The demonic cannot exist if there's no God. And without the Christian God, supernatural reality slides back to the actions of demons like Saturn and Aphrodite what um, they would have called gods in St. Augustine's time. They used to criticize St. Augustine. He tells a story in Book 22 of the City of God. He says, they would say to the pagans, your saints just do what our gods do, to which St. Augustine said, you show me your gods and I'll show you our dead people. Because Christianity is as much about the dead as it is about the living. But it's taking the world, even that pagan world, and subverting it and redirecting it. You can either buy into God's world and understand reality because religion's about more than being a nice person. It's about living in peace in God's world. Or you can check out and have your own version of reality, uh, the favored flavor of life in America today. But you know what the problem is? Without Jesus and the rationality that faith brings into our life, because faith takes us beyond re where reason alone can go. Without faith and reason, life is absurd because human beings have a nagging suspicion that it really isn't absurd, that there really is something there. But if you don't understand it and you're caught between this intuition that there's something, you are stuck in reality without any way out of that graveyard. Now, there is someone out there and there is more to all of reality than what appears. That's why vampire movies, I'll just use an example, where crucifixes are powerless, are deeply problematic. Uh, so what is, what's the vampire now that wants you to feed his blood and can make you a vampire when you drink his blood? He's a chemical reaction? Uh, he's a pagan god? How do you understand these movies? How are they even coherent without Christianity? The gross, the horrible, and the terrible, if not confronted by faith, are weaponized in our time. Because what Jesus does in the gospel, especially today, when he talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, he is saying you cannot use destruction to bring about racial justice. You can't use slander and false accusation to make po your political life better. Scapegoating and violence cannot protect us from the harsh realities of corporeal life. Jesus is scapegoated. He's the one killed on the outside of a city, died pinioned to a cross. He's the victim and he should be buried deep like any monster, except he rises as the Lord of the nations and our hope because he has completely turned the idea of sacrifice on its head. He's completely robbed grossness, horror, and terror of any meaning because without him, none of that stuff has any meaning. So 
That is why the gospel is the most subversive element in the world. It's why nations and like the communists of China are so afraid of it because it takes all of reality and turns it on its head and it reveals the chinks in our armor. What disgusts us, what horrifies us, the name of our terrors, the gospel colonizes them. It heals them, redirects them, and gives to our disordered imaginings by confronting them. It transformed them through the truth of faith and the truth of reason. And when its mission is accomplished, it robs the howling mob of its illusion of goodness. It unmasks the cult of accusation that dominates us. It exposes the demonic scarecrow's bag of tricks. You know, I didn't talk about one of the scariest movies ever made. The Wizard of Oz. Don't tell me the flying monkeys did not scare you as a little kid. But remember in The Wizard of Oz, one of the scariest movies ever made, especially for little kids, it's a mean neighbor who wants to kill Dorothy's little dog, Toto. She's in the forest and the, and the, the trees are grabbing at them. Machines come alive and, and, and cry. There's witches of both flavors, good and bad, flying monkeys, a bullying wizard. But the illusion, the scarecrow, whose job is to scare off the crows, but in turn is scared of everything, the scarecrow isn't, uh, isn't uh, something to be terrified of. It becomes Dorothy's companion. It's a wise and loving advisor. It's a guide through life like a saint is a guide through life. And what does the scarecrow want more than anything? It just wants a brain. It wants to understand. Because it knows if it can understand, it can find its way out of the cornfield. So here we are, Halloween, All Saints Day, and All Souls Day. These three days about the dead and human reality of the gross, the horrible, and the terrible, bundled together around the resurrection. And so, my friends, I'm calling to you from the dark. I'm inviting you to a banquet where you will eat the flesh and drink the blood of a dead man who's not really dead. But when you do it, you'll join his army of the dead. <laughs> well, actually, they're a lot more alive than you and I are because they live in the sight of God. And so, every horror movie, it points to something, doesn't it? This has been Oro Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold.